Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with David Barry, CEO and founder of Valo, an AI for drug discovery and drug development company that's raised over $500 million in funding. David, thanks for chatting with me today. Brett, thanks for the opportunity to be here. It's great to be able to speak with you. Yeah, no problem at all. So to kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Sure. So I'm David Barry. I grew up in New York, trained as an MD-PhD from Harvard and MIT. I had all intentions on going down the physician-scientist route until I got bit by the entrepreneuring bug in medical school. And then I proceeded to become the single biggest disappointment to my mother I possibly could have been by never practicing clinical medicine. And after that, which was really driven by starting a few companies, I ended up joining what was then a venture capital firm known as Flagship Ventures, with whom I've spent about 17 years with, terms now known as Flagship Pioneering. And I've had the honor and privilege of working with an outstanding team who create a series of companies over the years across life sciences loosely and broadly defined. So including agriculture, including bioenergy, but mostly focused on therapeutics and some other areas along those lines and have learned, if you will, a lot over the years by starting a whole series of companies where I think one of the fundamental things that I've had the privilege of seeing up close is as you start company after company, you start seeing that there's some really interesting reproducible patterns. And uh, what I've been really enjoying over the last several years is spending a lot of time understanding those patterns and understanding how they can be used to build better and better companies. And can you take us back to that first company that you started and just maybe share a bit more information about it and, and the age you were when you founded the company? Sure. I might give you two different vignettes. The first company I ever got involved with, I won't get into too many of the details, but I'll talk about it somewhat superficially, happened to have been my second month of medical school. And ultimately, the way that this started was completely unintentionally, where I was sitting in my pathology class. And during pathology class, we had a series of guest lecturers come in. One of these guest lecturers came in and he talked about this really interesting material that he had developed to bind what are called advanced glycosylation end products. And so what those are notable for in the medical community is something called hemoglobin A1C, which is measured as a way to look for, if you will, long-term over a series of about three months, uh, your status in regulating glucose. So it's a really good way of assessing diabetic or pre-diabetic status. So he had developed this material he wanted to put into dialysis filters to remove hemoglobin A1C. Now, I happen to have been at the time, I guess, probably a cocky 22-year-old. And I went up to this guy who was a National Academy member. And I said, look, I'm sure your technology works, but I think it's the wrong idea. And of course, he asked me why. And I said, well, you know, hemoglobin A1C is a sign of diabetes. It's not a cause of diabetes. So if you pull it out of the blood, you will not improve the disease and you'll blind doctors from being able to see how their patients are doing. So I don't see the benefit. 
And so you know, he asked me what I thought I would do with it at, instead of it. Now, truth be told, I had absolutely no idea. More was just sharing my kind of observation, but it was a really good lesson, which was if you're going to share something, have an idea. And you know, I had my first, uh, if you will, entrepreneurial moment where I said to him, I said, well, look, I got some ideas, but there's a lot of people who want to talk to you. Let me take you out to lunch and let me talk to you about them in a bit more detail. So, you know, he bought it and we, uh, we got together over lunch, came up with some ideas, ultimately launched a company with it. But the reality was I had no idea what I was doing and learned all of this sort of on the fly and ended up doing this on the side while I was in medical school. And so a lot of learnings there. But the first one I would say sort of more scalable company that I built was a company in starting in 2005, 2006 out of flagship, a company called LS9. And this was a company that was engineering bacteria, E. coli in particular, to convert sugar into drop-in replacement fuels and chemicals. So this was back in the era where ethanol was coming online, cellulosics were becoming a big deal, oil was on the path to becoming $140 a barrel. And we saw a really interesting opportunity not just to make a bit more ethanol or make this sort of not quite exact fuel of biodiesel, but make actual fuels, right? The things that we actually put in our cars, the things we actually use for chemicals. And we figured out, despite the fact that people told us we couldn't, that in fact, we could engineer bacteria to make exactly the right sorts of fuels. And so this was a very interesting experience because, you know, we started the company, launched it out of a lab in San Francisco, uh, had this sort of irk of it's not possible and built a great group of people who loved having that chip on their shoulder. And we figured out, well, how to solve the impossible. And um, that going on a, uh, what ended up being a whirlwind journey of growing this company into one of the hotter companies in the Valley at the time. And uh, I'll put it this way, it was an incredible learning experience of being involved in a venture that grew at that rate and came out of nothing more than an idea on paper at the beginning. Wow, that's amazing. And I also see that you had an IPO in 2015, is that correct? So I've had the privilege of being around a few companies that have gone public. I'd say one of the more interesting ones, just kind of looking back at it, was a company that I founded back in 2012 called Series Health. And uh, this is a company that was trying to make therapeutic products out of the microbiome, microbiome being the bacteria that are in and on us. Now, at the time in 2012, this was a very fringe field that only about a few academics had heard of. You know, I literally got laughed at at academic meeting, at pharma meetings, people saying that this was just kind of you know, chasing smoke signals. And we went from this path where we went from that craziness to in, I think it was 2015, the company went public. So about two and a half years later, plus or minus, and closed on its first day of trading at a little over a $2 billion valuation, which was an absolutely crazy ride. Now, in the period of, in between, we ended up coming up with an idea for what could be a first therapeutic. We put that therapeutic into patients. We showed that we clinically cured some 90% of these patients, which was incredibly exciting. And the company was off to the races. And what's really exciting, and this is a great time to actually talk about it, was earlier this year, that drug got approved by the FDA for what's called recurrent clostridium difficile infection. And uh, just last week, ended up being commercially marketed. So We've now walked this journey over about 11 years where we've gone from what's called a crazy idea to something that's actually on the market. One of the most exciting moments along that period was, um, remember I was at a big dinner that a friend was throwing 
and a very, very well-known professor comes up to me. We start talking about the company. He said, well, you know, it's not surprising that that company is doing so well because it was such an obvious idea. And I love that in about a, what, a six-year period or something like that, we went from crazy fringy to obvious. Definitely a, an interesting observation, if you will, if I can go 30,000 feet away from it as to how the field can change quite so quickly. That's amazing. If I look through your LinkedIn, it just seems like you can't stop starting companies. You just start one company <laughs> after another. Where does that you know, motivation and drive come from just to keep doing this over and over and over again after you continue to have all this success? Well, first, I appreciate you uh, saying that I've had success because from my perspective, part of what's always interesting to me is kind of coming up with big ideas that can have real impact. And I think anytime you look out at the world, you can always see opportunities for impact. Part of the reason I like fields like therapeutics and agriculture and energy, especially green energy, is because those are areas where if we're successful, the notion of positive impact is potentially unbounded. And that's really exciting and really motivating to me. And the other part of it, though, is we also know that those problems are unsolved and they're going to continue to be unsolved. And there's going to be aspects of that that continue to call for people to think of new and big solutions. Again, that's particularly exciting. A part of this is that I've spent 17 years working with the team at Flagship and the model that we've had at Flagship is to create these sorts of companies, to build a reproducible model where we can come up with ideas, try to figure out how we can almost fail in proving them wrong, and through this approach, come up with the ideas that we think can be particularly big winners. But I will say, I mean, look, you know, coming up with ideas is the easy part. You know, it's easy to come up with a lot of ideas. I think where it becomes more challenging is trying to figure out which are the ideas that are addressable, addressable in a timely and a cost-effective manner, and where those ideas can translate into real and meaningful impact. And with Flagship, is that a traditional venture fund, or is that more like an incubator in a, a startup studio or a company studio? I would put it, if you put it in those terms, it's closest to, if you will, a company studio, but it's a studio with a fund. And so part of this is the learnings that we've had over the years around creating so many companies have taught us a number of the reasons why companies fail. And it's allowed us to engineer systems to make it more likely for companies to succeed. And this can become anything from just sort of certain entrepreneurial bias of not wanting to ask critical questions to making sure you can put in appropriate stage gates to making sure companies are appropriately funded to making sure you can build teams, to making sure you can build the right patent estate. And the more that you can lock those in and lock those in early, the more you're giving your company a better chance to succeed from day one. And then just for context for listeners, so they can understand the size here, it's a massive fund, right? I think I read online it was $3 billion in capital commitments. The last fund was, uh, was about three and a half, yes. Wow, that's amazing. Now, a couple of other questions that we like to ask, really just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. First one, what founder or CEO do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? Well, I'm going to apologize if this is a trite answer, but it's Thomas Edison. And I look at Thomas Edison as a blend of a scientist, an entrepreneur, an innovator, and a creator. And there's so many things I think to admire about someone like Thomas Edison. One is... If you think about the embodiment of it's easy to come up with ideas, it's hard to build great companies. It's hard to solve the problems. I mean, I think he embodies that more than anyone else. And I think we all know the story about 
how many different filaments you tried in the context of the light bulb. But ultimately, all that mattered is that one of them worked. And really, that becomes it. You know, I think one of the things that I really like about him, for better or for worse, is we always talk about entrepreneurial persistence, right? And I think that back in the era when he founded a company called General Electric, one of the things that he was pushing was AC as opposed to DC. And I think many of us would look back and say, hey, DC probably would have been the better thing for us to have from a longer term perspective. You know, whatever. It's not even worth debating at this point. But his entrepreneurial persistence, regardless of whether it was better or not, caused AC to win. And that's changed the world at this point. And so watching his ability to have vision, make vision reality, have the persistence to make hard problems repeatedly solvable, I think it's just a tremendous testament to what we like to think of as what great entrepreneurs are. And what about books? And the way we like to frame this question is to ask for a quick book. So a quick book is a book that just rocks you to your core. It you know, changes how you view the world, changes how you think about the world. Do you have any quick books that come to mind? Oh, so I got, there's two books that I tend to always think of. One is an older book that you can't call a quick book under any stretch of the imagination. And I say that because it is a very long read, which is My Years with General Motors by Alfred Sloan. And I say that because I think what he did in that book is outline so many of the principles that set up and structure the modern corporation, how organizations work together, how organizations work efficiently, but it is not a fast book by any stretch of the imagination. And then I'd say, you know, one that I've always found kind of intriguing is Leaders Eat Last. And that I, I find kind of a really interesting way just to speak about how teams work, how companies become effective, how the interaction between managers and employees can be effective or toxic, and that there's so many simple components to behavior that can drive that interaction that done right can be incredibly powerful and done wrong can be, frankly, catastrophic. Love it. Now let's switch gears and let's dive a little bit deeper into the company. So maybe if you can just give us a very high level, you know, non-technical overview of what the company does, I think that would be a great place to start. Sure. So over the last three and a half, four years, I've been building a company called Valo Health. Valo is a company that is using large-scale data and artificial intelligence to redefine the way we think about drug discovery and development. Now, the way I think about it is that if you look at the pharmaceutical industry and how drugs are discovered and developed, it is an incredibly silent process. So data is held locally, operations are performed locally. The amount of sharing that occurs from step to step is relatively minimal. And the amount to use that data is challenged at best. And what we've seen the opportunity to do because of where we sit now with scale and framework of data is to, instead of having the siloed data architecture, to construct a fully integrated data architecture and one that allows then the operations to also become integrated. Now we've seen the tech industry, I don't wanna say in a straightforward fashion, but in a repeatable fashion, look at sector after sector after sector and execute on effectively this as a game plan. Because ultimately what data and computation do is they allow us as people to expand the potential of what we can do. And that's because, for example, people can think in what, three, four dimensions, they can't think in 36 or a thousand or a million. 
And when you get into the amount of data that comes out of something like drug discovery and development, that's exactly the challenge that we, we deal with. And I can give you some detailed examples on that. But ultimately, what we're doing is we're creating this integrated framework so that what we can do is enable drugs to be discovered and developed faster, at lower cost, and with a higher probability of success. And that means what we can ultimately do, or what we're hoping to do, is to enable the drug industry that exists today to be able to become more efficient, more effective. Now, when you think about that, there's about 13,000 diseases that have been described. There have been about 1,500 drugs that have been approved since the onset of the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. So we're at about one out of every 10 diseases, just on a statistical basis, that has a drug. It's not actually a fair way of representing it. But the other side of it is there's so many drugs that go after the same mechanism that that's also not a fair way of representing it. And I like to think of a world where you can imagine a drug for every disease. So we need a different tooling. We need a different enabling that allows our industry to be able to deliver that because ultimately then we can start thinking about the promise of medicine where we can not just think about how we can manage sick care better, but also how we can manage healthcare better, how we can get into prevention better. But we need the right tools. We need the right capabilities to better understand disease and to act on those understandings. And that at Valo is what we're trying to provide. And would that also require changes then at the FDA? Because from what I understand, it's a very complex and very lengthy process to get a drug approved. So if we wanted to live in this world where we have a drug for every disease, would there need to be regulatory change as well? Well, so the FDA plays a very important role in the drug discovery and development industry. And that is, it is there for all intents and purposes to make sure that drugs are safe and that drugs are effective. And that's really important all around. What the FDA has done, and I think they've done a really good job on doing that, is to make sure that they are up to date on current tools, current techniques, and that they are doing their part to use modern technology, modern understandings, innovations in clinical trials, et cetera, et cetera, to be able to better and faster, and frankly, at lower cost, get drugs to patients so long as they are effective and safe. Now, we've had the privilege of having a series of conversations with the FDA, and I think the FDA has been quite open to rational and reasonable approaches that one can bring to bear, whether or not they have artificial intelligence associated with them, in order to be able to deliver on this. So I don't think it requires any sort of wholesale change. It requires working closely with the regulators, and making sure that there's an alignment on what is sufficient information, what's sufficient clarity, right? The challenge that people always get afraid of with AI is the kind of black box nature of it. So the more that it can be clear, it can be explainable, the insights can be understood, the nature of the calculations can be transparent, the easier it is for regulators to work with companies on. And you mentioned their speed and efficiency. So just so the audience can understand, can you share some numbers about the average time it takes for a drug to get to market and the average cost? Sure. So many, many, many different sources that provide this information. So there's ranges, but the average drug takes something like 10 to 15 years from an idea to being able to get approved. The example I gave a series earlier was about 11. So right in that. The average cost for a drug from start to getting approved, and this is frankly before a drug company that uh, has a single drug, for example, has any revenue, 
can be one to two billion dollars. Many times it's less, but on average, especially when you weight it for failures, it's in that, those ranges. And the probability of success, well, it varies based on the different diseases that one might want to go after, averages on an industry-wide basis at about one in 10. So the, the numbers can be quite stark, which frankly, at the same time, also is what creates, we think, such a big, but also important opportunity. Hmm. Super fascinating. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the SPAC that you were working on at one point or what would they call it? A D-SPAC, I think is the right, right phrase. So what was that process like for you as you were exploring going public via SPAC? Sure. So just as a little bit of context, we launched the company uh, in the middle of 2019. We had the great privilege of having some great investors working with us from day one. We raised about $100 million in our Series A. At about the end of 2020, we raised about $300 million in a Series B. And, you know, in 21, I guess I can put it this way, that SPACs were cool. There were a lot of SPACs being developed and it was becoming a really interesting way to think about taking companies public. And we ended up partnering up with Coatsla Ventures on the SPAC pipe. We raised $200 million in capital commitments to go alongside, or a little over, to go alongside a $345 million SPAC, which was Coatsla SPAC. And what was great about this is you know, Coastal is about as great a name to partner with on this. The SPAC was a unique SPAC in that it didn't have any warrants, which is what people used to complain about. They still do in that construct. Investors were really a who's who. So we thought it was as good a possible setup as we could get. So we signed this up in, I think it was April of 21. We started going down the path. Now in around June, the SPAC world started changing because there were sets of questions around warrants and how accounting procedures were working. And that led to slowdowns at the SEC, which of course needs to sign off on any of your documentation before you can make them go public. But what happened as we were going through that process was this world of, if you will, arbitrage investors started getting very interested in SPACs. And that's because if a SPAC shuts down, everyone gets their money back at $10 a share. If a SPAC goes forward, they can get paid at $10 a share. And so if a SPAC is trading, for whatever reason, it's slightly below, there's an opportunity to effectively create arbitrage. And so starting in around August, the SPAC world writ large all started trading from above $10 to you know, somewhere between $9.90 and $9.97. I think it was every SPAC except for Donald Trump's SPAC. And so it was fascinating because you start seeing what happens to the shares and these arbitrage funds start getting in and all these great names that were involved in the stock when you signed up over time were less and less in. And that was in part because the desks that were making these decisions were not the fundamental investors. They were the best investors, the portion of the investor that invested in SPACs. So you sort of realized, you started seeing that this arbitrage dynamic led to a fundamental change in the vehicle. And what was interesting was the symbol that people would see on this was the change in redemption rates. But what we ended up seeing was a shareholder base that was very different than what we thought we were going to end up with, where when we were doing our math, getting close to the date that we would execute, we saw a dynamic, a selling dynamic that would probably have taken our stock, having nothing to do with the fundamentals of the company, from about $10 to $6. That would get the pipe investors who had just invested it at $10 upset, and they'd probably sell. And we saw very quickly that these stocks can go to 
you know, $3. It turned out we were wrong. They went down to closer to $1 on average. And from our standpoint, our view is, you know, sorry for me putting this so tritely, but investors don't like losing money. And so we decided it was not in the best interest of our existing or our potentially incoming investors to execute on this. And we decided to pull out. So we were going down the, the SPAC pipe path. We were going down a path where we were going to exactly as you said, to de-SPAC. And then instead, I guess what we did was we uh, unspacked. And, you know, those are in the moment, incredibly difficult decisions, especially because of all the effort that the team puts in. And well, you know, some cost analysis is never the right way to make decisions. When you're living it, obviously you see how much, you know, blood, sweat and tears, well, hopefully not that much blood, uh, (laughs) went into the process. And you almost feel like you let your team down. But it's very easy to see with the benefit of hindsight that it was, we ended up making a very prudent decision at the time that if we didn't, for no fault of, I think, the company's execution and all the great work that our team has done, our stock would be unduly punished. And you can look at the numbers of stocks that went forward in Q4 of 21 or SPACs that went forward in 21. And frankly, that's what's happened. And so I feel bad for the teams that have been involved in that really because of the essence of a financial structure rather than the performance of a company. So very happy with the decision we made as much as it was difficult at the time. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. How do you approach decision-making? So when it comes to, you know, very difficult and complex decisions like that. What's happening behind the scenes? Do you have like a a framework that you follow or what's the typical process? Well, so there's usually two things that I like to do. One is whenever you have an unknown event that's coming up is before that event reads out or before you get that, before you get the data is to put down on a piece of paper, a set of, if you will, bright lines which is if it looks like A, we do this. If it looks like B, we do this. If it looks like C, we do this. And we do that because one of the things that happens, and I've seen this too many times, is when data comes out and it's not quite what you want, then people start going through these gymnastics where they start trying to figure out how they can reconvert that data into something that you want. And it forces people to sometimes make bad decisions as opposed to dispassionate decisions. And that's what gets really, really hard is making these kind of very cleanly dispassionate decisions, especially when things are murky. So that's one piece of it. The second is what we did in the context of that was there were a handful of us, a very small group of us, where we were kind of looking at the facts and we ended up kind of seeing what the trend was. Remember, we had daily calls for probably three weeks to think about the various scenarios that we could work through. But what we did was we also tried to figure out how we were going to make the decision. And so one of the first things we did was we figured out who are the people and the advisors and whether you want to call them mentors or whatever, that we could actually trust. Because all too often in these situations, people have their own incentives and the incentives can be split. They can be mixed. They can take you in different directions. And it's on us to make sure we understand what those incentives look like. So what we did was we actually found these very clear partners that we could work with. We got the intelligence we could get out of that. We found a couple that were incredibly valuable. 
And, you know, when it came to the hours to make the decision, we just got the small group of us in a room and we, we kind of went around the table and it was, you know, we basically said, we're not leaving this room until we have a unanimous thumbs up, thumbs down. And the reality is because we went in this process together and we shared information, that portion of the process was incredibly short and we were highly, highly aligned on it. And then it just became a question of communicating. And look, I mean, I'd rather communicate very explicitly the news that is not as expected and the explicit reasons why, as we did to the company and with our investors and whatnot, rather than trying to create any false narratives or false coloring or anything along those lines. Super fascinating. Now, something else I want to ask about, and you know, it's the dream of, I think, anyone who's a, a tech entrepreneur, they want to build a billion-dollar company, or that's you know, the aspiration, if they're being honest. Some will say that's not, but I think everyone secretly does want to make that happen. And, and you made that happen here with your current company. Was that the first unicorn or have you built other unicorns as well? No, I, I mean, this is not the first. This may have been the fastest, but it was not the first. And, you know, building unicorns is both a blessing and a curse. And, and sorry, that sounds like such a, you know, an obnoxious thing to say, because when you're not a unicorn, you want to be a unicorn. And, um, you know, for someone who isn't there that wants to be there, someone who has been able to, you know, raise money to a billion dollar valuation it almost feels sort of disconnected to be able to say, oh, I don't want it. And the reason that it becomes a curse is that, well, it's something that especially as economies turn south, you, know, you have an obligation to your investors to make sure you can maintain your share price on their behalf. And it just becomes a progressively higher and higher standard. And since all markets are cyclical, it's something that you have to go into eyes wide open. But I would say what was interesting about, about this journey, I'll, I'll give you two vignettes. One was, I remember, we were in the process of getting close to closing our Series B, which is what made us have that unicorn status, having closed our Series B at about a 1.15 billion post in 2020. So this was during COVID times. And at the board meeting, my older daughter, who was about six at the time, enjoyed hanging out with me. And I kind of mentioned some, I mentioned this dynamic that this would bring us into unicorn territory, et cetera, et cetera. And my daughter with the mute button off said something to the effect of, Daddy, why are you talking about unicorns at your board meeting? And of course, that made me realize for the first time that unicorns to a six-year-old girl and unicorns to an entrepreneurial founder mean very, very different things. And it was um, one of those very eye-opening experiences. Of course, I explained to her what a unicorn meant to me versus what it meant to her, but it was a great dynamic and I think the board got a kick out of it. But from our perspective, look, it wasn't a goal. It was more, you know, we were trying to do what was right to build the company and the notion of building a company where you can transform the way drugs are discovered and developed, it's a big, audacious vision and set of goals. And what we needed to do is make sure we had the right capital support and investors with a shared vision and, frankly, a shared long-term vision to be able to bring this to reality. And from this conversation, it's clear that you're not just an innovator and an entrepreneur, but you also seem to have a very deep understanding of capital markets and you know, how to navigate taking companies public, how to navigate the whole SPAC world. Where did that expertise come from? I never know if I'm actually an expert in it, but I've had the opportunity to be involved in a lot of companies and a lot of transactions, many good and many challenged. And I think the best lessons come from the really challenging environments. And again, it's easy to say, but when you're raising around and everyone wants to invest in it, it seems to be a very easy thing to do. But when you're trying to do an IPO and you're 1.1x subscribed, when you're supposed to be 3 to 5x oversubscribed, those become the real challenges where you kind of 
learn the details of how markets move, what helps to create positive market momentum, what can be harmful in it. And again, I've had the, I hate to say the opportunity to have been involved in a number of these tricky situations. And not every situation has worked out perfectly, but it's those where I think I've had the opportunity to learn a ton. Not to say that there's great things about what's going on right now, because this is a very challenging market. But as one looks at this market, and having understood the dynamics of capital markets, allows you to think a little differently in markets like this, because ultimately what we all need is to figure out the right way to capitalize our companies and do it in ways that are positive for all of our shareholders, which include our employees as well as our investors. And something else I want to also ask about our skill sets. So obviously you're very skilled at what you do, but if you had to choose one skill that you would describe as a superpower that you have, what would that be? You know, it's a great question. I got asked this by one of the board members of Valo recently, Harsha Ramalingam. And he was asking me that question, but he also asked me in the question of how I like to spend my time. And it was interesting because I've always thought that one of my superpowers was innovation, sort of seeing problems and coming up with unique solutions. And, you know, well, that can take place in a science world or an engineering world or financial world. I think that's what it's come down to. What's been fascinating to me is in different environments, people have told me that I have different superpowers, but I, I think that's the one that I, I tend to think that I have. Although I will say one of the things that the reason I was talking to Harsha about this, not just because he asked the question, was because he raised the point of, you know, if other people are perceiving your superpowers to be different than where you think you are, are you spending your time right? And that becomes, I think, a really interesting question, which is, you know, frankly, I think we should spend our time as to what our superpowers are. I love that. Now, if you were just starting a company again today from scratch, based on everything that you've experienced so far, what would be your number one piece of advice? I think the single most important thing for any company, and so many people say this, and it's so underappreciated, is surrounding yourself with the right people. Now, what does the right people mean? One, it does not mean people who are like you, but it does mean people who share certain core values. And I think this notion of shared values, again, super easy to say, very, very hard to realize and completely under interviewed for, right? Because it's a, it feels like an awkward interview. I won't get into all the details of it, but usually when we interview people, we're looking for, you know, phenotypic similarities, personality similarities, unwittingly or winningly. We're looking for skill set matches, but we spend very little time looking at shared values. And I think that's really important because When you get into the world of tough decisions, when you don't have shared values, things break. I think it's also important to surround yourself with people who fill in your weaknesses, right? Too often, I think we try to find people who do the same sorts of things we do because the conversation is easier. But if you can find people who can basically know the things super well that you don't, then you form a really good team. But the other piece that goes with that is you got to invest the time because People who have different expertises often have very different personalities. And so you have to invest the time and the effort to build that trusted relationship. And that's not something that happens by just hiring someone and giving them a nice comp package. It happens by spending the time working together, working through problems together. And I'm going to say this over and over, but investing the time, working side by side, right? This is one of the challenges in a post-COVID world, which is I don't feel time on Zoom or time on Slack is the same as time in a physical room together because 
the notion of watching someone's body language and watching someone engage slightly differently, or, you know, we've all seen people do it, right? Watching people who are on email the whole time when they're at a meeting. I mean, you just don't build the same trusted relationships. And I'm spending time on this because again, the team bit of this is just so important to doing this right. It's not just the people who work with you. It's also the people who work for you. It's also the people on your board and making sure that you have those clarities of aligned visions, aligned values, complementary skill sets, and a real kind of share in drive. I see one of the things that pulls teams apart is when they have a different energy, right? We have some people who really like the nine to five job cadence and some people who like the, I don't know, the 9 a.m. to 9 a.m job cadence and the different cadences tend to not work that well together. So getting that to align, I think becomes really, really important. And I'm going to stress this because in the beginning, you just want to get quote, quote bodies and seats so you can make progress. It's worth slowing down so you can go fast. And when it comes to company building, is there any advice that you see commonly shared that you just strongly disagree with and you know, would hope that founders that you're investing in or founders that you work with would never follow? Does any advice like that come to mind? You know, one thing that I've always been a little wary of is this whole notion of fake it till you make it. And I think that's basically this, this kind of concept that's been drawn a little bit too far, which is, do you need perfection before you start? No. But does what you're doing have to be real? Does it have to be genuine? Does it have to be honest? Absolutely. You know, if you're making promises to investors, to customers, you really have to live up to it. And I, look, I think it's okay to test the market. I think it's okay to understand, obviously, it's important to understand what your customers want and make sure you establish that product market fit. But at the same time, if you're going to sign a contract and you're going to deliver, as sure as anything, what you're delivering and what you're promising has to be what you say it's going to be. Yeah, I think Theranos is the ultimate example of that, that fake it till you make it <laughs> doesn't end well for uh, for anyone who's doing that. Exactly. And I, look, I don't know. I don't know the details of the case, because obviously this is all these are all legal matters and people way more familiar have have opined. I mean, one thing that an entrepreneur can look at that as is and just this is all just from looking at movies and reading, you know, reading quotes in newspapers. When you look at the fake it till you make it right, it almost feels like there's a slippery slope in there at some point where. Someone just feels like they're leaning a little too hard on a sale where they could justify it. But at some level, right, there's almost nothing you should justify. You should sell what you have and tell people where you're going to go, but they should know where you are and where you're not. Super useful. Now, final question that I want to ask or two more questions here. How do you come up with opportunities and how do you know if it's the right opportunity? So looking through your entire career, it seems like you're very, very good at spotting an opportunity and then really just capitalizing on it and, and pouncing on it. So what's your discovery process to find these billion dollar plus opportunities? You know, I think the first thing is just asking a lot of big open-ended questions. And, you know, I think people often think that the questions are super important, but the way I've always thought about this is you ask a question, you just keep on pulling on threads and pulling on threads and pulling on threads and you see where it takes you. And sometimes it takes you to interesting places or it takes you to not interesting places. So I just like asking questions about things that don't make sense to me. So I'll give you one. This is a question that was always sort of funny to me, right? Which was, how are babies born? Now, let me caveat that, right? Which is, I know about the birds and the bees. You don't have to explain that to me. But one of the things that's fascinating to me is that 
if you do a transplant into a patient and you have like one gene that's off, you can have a massive rejection. But when you think about what a baby is, right, half of its genes come from someone else, which is fascinating. And yet it's not rejected all of the time. So how does that happen? Right. And of course, ahead of time, it's not like an, a potential or expected mother knows who the father is going to be when she's born. She doesn't know who her partner is going to be. So it's, it's this crazy thing that biology has solved. And I just find that a really fascinating question. I don't know if there's a company in there. And I started pulling on that. And you start realizing that in the conception process, there's certain things where the body very intentionally creates what I would call a generalized form of tolerance. Tolerance being a term that basically refers to dampening the immune system across a whole range of things. And then it turns out the placenta does some really cool things where literally like it eats little pieces off of the growing embryo and the growing fetus and it expresses it as if it's the mother. And those actually create an immune privilege around the growing fetus and embryo. And it's, it's really cool. Now, all of a sudden, there's really interesting biology. Now, you might say, is there a company there? Well, I can tell you I found some interesting biology in the context of asking those questions. But then the question is, okay, once you have those insights, how do you keep on pulling? And that just involves continuing to ask questions and asking questions and asking questions. And ultimately, I think you have to have this sort of hybrid of the big you know, what if, but it has to couple with a so what, meaning that you can ask a really cool question, but there has to be a practical application. And then there has to be a reasonable time frame for which it's achievable. Because one of the things I think that people talk about is you can have great ideas, but you can time them wrong. And uh, one of my favorite examples of this, one of the companies I never started was, I think this was in about 2001, I was getting together with a friend of mine from college. And we were talking about this thing that was really annoying, which was, hey, you know, if you go out to a bar and you happen to drink too much, you know, there's no good way when you're in Boston to be able to get home because there's like no cabs that are available in Boston. And so what do you do? Right. And anytime I start describing that, people can say, oh, did you come up with Uber ahead of Uber? Reality is no. Right. Because you needed the framework of mobile devices and apps in order to make something like an Uber or a Lyft to become a reality. And the way that we'd conceived it was you could actually call a phone number. A phone number would bring out a centralized driver who would then have a bike in their trunk, a fold-up bike. They could drive you home and they could use the bike to get back. And you know, not that I'm going to get into the details of that, that I don't think would have been a successful venture. And the very big difference is the timing and the instantiation of something like an Uber and a Lyft gave a degree of scale that was totally different because just the, the nature of the transaction and the requirements of borrowing someone else's car and using foldable bicycles was so complicated. And that was part of why we thought it just wouldn't, um, wouldn't have worked. And final question here for you. When you go from having a private company to a public company, what's the biggest difference as you make that transition? Well, you know, I think the biggest thing about being public is you are being valued every second of the day. And so the nature of how you think about communicating to investors, how you think about communicating your story has to start systematically changing because people are looking for some form of expectation with very, very different times. When you're in the private world, it's a streamlined framework of communications. There's an alignment, there's a directional arrow, there's a time arrow. 
So it's a much easier, I think, to get everyone coordinated. Owner of the public markets, anyone can be an investor. And I don't happen to know if someone down the street might want to invest and is hoping that the stock goes up three pennies today so they can day trade it versus a long-term investor who's hoping for the, our vision to become a reality over the next, call it three to five years. So I think that's a challenge that you have to think through and make sure that you're, the way you speak about the company is understandable by as many of the stakeholders as possible. The way that you talk to the world is consistent with that, but also that your company's operations are able to support it so that you're delivering on what you promise and you're delivering consistently on what you promise. Amazing. David, we are way over on time here, so we'll have to wrap. Before we do wrap up here, if people want to follow along with your journey, where should they go? Uh, well, easy to find me on uh, on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active there. I'm probably the worst Twitter user of all time, but so I'd say uh, LinkedIn is probably the easiest place. Amazing. Well, David, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. I've really enjoyed our conversation, and I know the audience is going to as well. So thanks a lot for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you and really appreciate the opportunity. No problem. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 